welcome to A Climate Change with Matt Mattern. I'm Max Slobe sitting in today for Matt. We have as guests Steve Valk and Dana Nucitelli of Citizens Climate Lobby. Steve and Dana, welcome and thank you for joining. Glad to be here. Thanks. Uh, you're essentially friends of the show to the extent that you, you've spoken uh, with Matt before, but still helpful to recap and provide some background on Citizens Climate Lobby. So to start, in, in some respects, the, the idea of groups that lobby on behalf of the environment isn't particularly new, but I suppose that could also be a, a matter of framing. Um, I, I don't think environmental lobbying reaches that far back into the 20th century. And while there are many groups that lobby on behalf of the environment, given the manifest importance of environment to human health and a robust economy, there are probably not enough. So could you give uh, a, a breakdown of how citizens' climate lobby fits into the, the political thunderdome and advocates on behalf of the environment? Sure, sure. So oh, oh, most of the environmental organizations that, that do lobby uh, on issues they lobby uh, at the staff level. They 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 have you know you know dozens of staffers in Washington who go knocking on doors and you know talking to aides and members of Congress to push you know this issue or that issue forward and that sort of thing. What we do is we we let the constituents of the members of Congress do the lobbying because we think that they're the most effective lobbyists. So, uh, so what we do is we uh, we train and support volunteers all across the country. We've got about 450 chapters all around the United States. We cover almost every congressional district, and they will go and they'll meet face to face with their members of Congress and their staff to uh, to try to push a climate solution forward in Congress. And the big solution that, that we've lobbied for for uh, a number of years has been a price on carbon with revenue given to households. And so we, we've been lobbying for that for, for, for quite some time. We recently expanded our, uh, our, our policy agenda to include some other things that, that we'll get into uh, here with, uh, with the conversation with you. But um, but the big thing with with the way that we lobby is that uh, it's it's easy for people to kind of get hung up in this thing about you know being right. Uh, and what I say is is that you have to kind of let go of being right before you can make a difference. Because if you're if all you're about is being right on an issue, that means that the person who doesn't agree with you is is wrong. Nobody wants to be wrong. So why not just let go of being right and just have a conversation to see where each of you are coming from and find out where the common ground is on, on that. And so we lobby both uh, Democrats and, and Republicans uh, with, with just as much uh, enthusiasm. And, and our approach is to come to an office with uh, appreciation and, and respect for the people that we're meeting with. We actually start our meetings off by acknowledging a member of Congress for something that they did that, that, that we really appreciated. And they're kind of taken off guard a little bit by that approach. And it, it, uh, it kind of changes the whole 
tenor of, of the meeting. It's, it's like, oh, yeah, you really like what I did? Hmm, tell me more. Uh, so it's, uh, it's, it's an approach that uh, ha- has been very effective with developing relationships with members of Congress, and, and particularly now with, uh, with the Republicans holding the House, it's going to be very important that we seek solutions through a, a bipartisan process, because otherwise it's, it's just not going to happen. It's, um, you know, it's, it's interesting to look at the numbers. Um, I, I think uh, you've published some statistics in terms of uh, this, this initiative of carbon fees and dividends uh, supported by 56% of Republicans in 2018. Um, but then it seems like, especially in today's climate, there's quite a today's political climate. There's quite a gap between what polling of 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 the electorate shows us and what the elected representatives are willing to support. Um, do you, do you feel you've been able to get that fifty six percent of Republicans who support the concept? Um, what's what's your level of optimism in terms of getting fifty percent? Six percent of Republican legislators to support the initiative. Um, not that you would even need that much, but but it just it conceptually, I always find that that mm-hmm. an interesting disconnect. That, that uh, I think on both sides of the aisle, we, there are things that that the people say they want, <laughs> and mm-hmm. yet getting their their elected representatives to move towards those things uh, is a totally different matter. I'll, I'll I'll jump in there and, and then I'll and Dana might have some uh, some information on on polling and, and and stuff that relates to that, but I, I think the the big hurdle for Republicans is whether or not you know taking a stand on something like putting a price on carbon would cost them their seat in Congress, and so from that standpoint, our job is to show them that hey if if you're willing to step up on the on this issue uh it's not going to hurt you might actually help you especially considering all the all the younger conservatives now that are are worried about climate change so some of the things that that we do uh in our chapters and in the congressional districts is is we go to uh you know chambers of commerce we go to businesses we 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 try to show them you know all of the different communities in their district that might support a, a particular policy like uh, like carbon pricing and 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 slowly but surely they're they're kind of warming up to the idea of oh well maybe this this isn't going to be as as deadly as as, as I thought so that's really on us to convince them that uh, that this is not just a good idea in general, but it's 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 also smart politics for them to uh, to support the, the these policies. Dana, what what would you add to that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I would just add that you know we had polling on a variety of different issues that you know people might say they support that given issue, but they won't consider it a top issue that they'll base their vote on. And so, like, there's broad support for carbon pricing, but you know that's that's position of a particular member of Congress might not you know 
that might be not be the topic that you know people base their vote on. And so one thing we try to do through our educational efforts is to increase the public's uh, prioritization of climate change so that they consider it a higher priority and thus more people will base their votes on a given uh, member of Congress's position on climate change and climate policies. That Yeah, that's got to be tricky. Um, so not just not just making an argument for the initiatives that you want to promote, but um, lifting the profile of those issues relative to mm -hmm. others on the agenda. Um, uh, I imagine that that can be, uh, that can be challenging um, yes. in, a, in a crowded marketplace of ideas and, and concerns. Um, and yet this is, you know, this, this is, this is a high profile issue. It's, it's a, or at the very least, the, the two words climate change are very present in the popular discourse. But, but do you feel like that popularity in the popular discourse is translating to a level of, of prioritization at, at a legislative level? I think things are certainly moving in the right direction. Like there used to be a lot of just straight up climate denial among certain members of Congress. And now like we've gotten past that and like pretty much everybody accepts the problem of climate change. And it's just a matter of getting them to understand the urgency of this, the need for solutions. Um, but we're certainly moving in the right direction there. And, and, you know, the reality of climate change with these extreme weather impacts getting worse and worse every year is kind of hammering that home for everybody. And so it's the denial is, is something that we're finally starting to move past, at least in, in moving in the right direction. Do, do you get any, have you interacted with any current or retired military personnel on this issue? Because I, I know I've seen a few interviews with military personnel where, where they just, they say, hey, we have no political investment here. Like our mission is, is preparedness. And um, they, you know, when it, when it, if it's actually going to affect military preparedness, they, they have to take something seriously, whether it's politically deemed liberal or conservative. Uh, and I've always found that kind of interesting that um, it, that, that seems to be sort of a, like an apolitical voice that can be injected into the, the conversation about climate issues. Oh, oh certainly. Yeah. I, I, I can't remember their names right off the top of my head, but a few years back, we, we did have a, a, a number of military people, you know, like retired generals and, and admiral, admirals who they could see what the threat was from climate change, whether it was sea level rise that affected naval ports, uh, you know, particularly like, like in Norfolk, Virginia, where they have, you know, high tide flooding all the time. Now, yeah, it, this is, this is a real threat to, uh, to our military or in places where we're involved in conflict, we could see that our uh, sort of addiction, as it were, to, to fossil fuels actually oh. endangered our military. Uh, the bulk of the casualties that, uh, that happened in, uh, in Iraq uh, during our involvement over there ha happened because of fuel convoys that were trying to get gas you know, from one place uh, to, to another. And, and as a matter of fact, uh, we we have a, a staffer here. He's our, our conservative outreach director. He served in the military and, and he saw he served in Iraq and Afghanistan. And he saw, yeah, this is this was definitely a, a problem for our military that 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 put our soldiers 
in harm's way. And so that's one of the reasons why he decided to get in, involved uh, in, the, in the climate issue and, and how he eventually found him his way to, uh, to, to citizens climate lobby. But yes, that's, no, that's really interesting. Yeah. These, these, these are great uh, spokespeople to, to have, you know, especially talking to Congress and appearing in hearings and, and, and saying, you know, how is climate change affecting our national security, our preparedness and, 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 and all of that. No, that's, that, that's an excellent point. And, and these are great people. Dana, any, yeah. anything uh, that, that, you know, on, on, on this, uh, particular front here so to speak well you know let's actually put a pin in this and and return to it after break um because it is really uh and i think an interesting wrinkle in the conversation uh this is max lopes i'm speaking with steve volk and dana nucitelli of citizens climate lobby we'll be back in a moment Hello, I'm Max Lowe sitting in today for Matt Mattern on a climate change with Matt Mattern. We're speaking with Steve Alk and David Nucitelli. In the last segment, we were talking about uh, how we can bring different voices into the conversation on climate change um, to, I would say, destigmatize climate change as a partisan topic of debate. Um, and one of those voices that we were discussing were, were people who are in the military, uh, the extent that military preparedness just doesn't care <laughs> that much about left or right. They care about the mission. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were saying that you, you've had veterans, uh, work with you. Um, and I was just wondering if you could expand a little on, on their experience and, um, what they've been able to offer to Citizens Climate Lobby. Right, right. Um, yes. It, um, so, yeah, the, the staffer that I was, I was telling you about, uh, Drew Ierly, he was, he was a medic uh, over there. So he saw firsthand, you know, what was, uh, what was happening uh, in these war theaters, you know, because of, you know, how we had to move fossil fuels around. I mean, if, all you had to do was roll out a, a, a solar array to get energy instead of you know diesel for the generators. Yeah, you know, then you wouldn't have that problem. Uh, so that that's one of the things. Another area where you can see is, is going to be a problem from us uh, from a military standpoint is the displacement of people around the world from these climate uh, catastrophes. What, what we're seeing now is, is, is climate refugees who have to move from places that are, that are flooded or have you know, incredible storm damage or, or just getting too hot. And as these, you have these mass migrations from one place to another, it creates a, a, a very destabilizing effect. And as a region destabilizes, then conflicts start to erupt over, over resources. And these are things that the United States might have to jump into and, and, and try to keep things from, from literally blowing up. I mean, you, you look at a country like Pakistan that had 
incredible flooding, like about a third of the country was affected by the by the floods over there. Well, guess what? Pakistan has nuclear weapons. Uh, if that country is destabilized, if the government gets toppled and we don't know who's in charge, that creates a, an incredibly dangerous uh, situation, uh, in, in, in my view, anyway. Yeah, and for yeah. that reason, the Department of Defense has, for a couple of decades now, described climate change as a threat to national security because of these you know, destabilizations, causing things like food and water insecurity, potentially contributing to civil wars and mass migrations. So the Department of Defense has for a long time um, been saying this thing, this, that climate change is a big threat to our security. It's so interesting because I, I really didn't have any intention of focusing on um, <laughs> uh, the, the, the military and, and, and national security in those, in those terms uh, in this conversation, but it, it, it is helpful to the extent that I think even as popular as, as the discourse is, or, or at least the two words, climate change, you see them in so many headlines, as popular as they are, it's still something that conceptually is very distant to peop, a lot of people. Um, right. And so um, I think what, what the two of you have just discussed in terms of military concerns and uh, stability of foreign governments, I, I would hope that would help internalize the, the the phenomenon a little more for people you kind of bring it a little more home in terms of something that can that, that, that people can conceptually wrap their arms around um, and, and understand on a, on a sort sort of more material level in terms of cause mm -hmm. and effect more immediate cause and effect um, I just think we are so politicized about our own borders uh, that if if one were to imagine the impacts on both our borders and borders in nations where we have uh, a strategic interest uh, or a humanitarian interest. Um, it, it really, I, I just, I would hope it would become a little more easy to access for people to, mm -hmm. to kind of grasp the urgency of, um, of, of the climate issue. Um, and, uh, maybe this is a clumsy pivot, but I'd, I'd actually like to kind of, turn back a little bit and given what, we, what we've just sort of laid out as uh, you know, really immediate concerns, uh, what, what, can you break down what it is that, that you're, some of the initiatives that you're advocating for that, um, that you hope will, will help address this issue? Sure. So um, the big thing, of course, is, is to stop the warming that's actually causing all these changes. I mean, people don't have to look at other parts of the world to wrap their heads around the, the, the impact of climate change. When, when you get four feet of water dumping down in a place in, in, in two days like they did in Houston during Hurricane Harvey, it hits home pretty hard, pretty fast. So I, I, I think people in the United States, because of these disasters that, that, that we're seeing, out in California with the atmospheric rivers, um, Dana, you can tell you live in over there. You you live through that over near Sacramento. Uh, it's uh, pe people can can see what's going on, and and so it's obvious what we need. We've got to bring the emissions down. We've got to stop the warming that's causing all of all of these changes uh, to our climate. And we we got a good start on that with the Inflation Reduction Act uh, 
uh, last year, which is incentivizing more clean energy uh, usage in our society. Uh, but there's there's more that needs to be done. It, it's it's not going to get the job done entirely. And uh, and one of the things that 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 we need to do actually is to uh, reform the permitting process because if we if we don't do that, then the emissions reductions that we're expecting aren't going to happen. And and Dana, perhaps you you, you could talk a little bit more, uh, you know, about uh, you know what's why permitting reform is uh, is 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 needed uh, and 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 how what the prospects are for that happening. Sure. So the Inflation Reduction Act uh, provided a bunch of tax credits for uh, clean energy, um, which, which is particularly going to go to wind and solar energy because those are kind of the cheapest forms of electricity available right now. The problem is that when you're going to build a large wind or solar farm out in the countryside somewhere where there's cheap available land, you then have to transport that clean electricity from these rural areas to the big population centers that tend to be, you know, big cities along the coast for the most part. And so that requires uh, long distance electric transmission lines. The problem there is that it takes us a very long time right now, like a, on, on average about a decade in the United States to build a new electric transmission line in large part because the permitting process is a very slow process uh, and right now. And so that's why we need to do some kind of permitting reform package through Congress to make the process happen faster so that we can we, we can connect these new wind and solar farms uh, to provide clean electricity to the grid and thereby phase out uh, fossil fuel power plants more quickly. Yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's estimated that, uh, I mean, there was one study, was, was it uh, Princeton that did that study? Uh, yeah. This Princeton study basically said, hey, if we don't, speed up the, the the permitting process something like 80 percent of the reductions that we're expecting from the inflation reduction act will not happen by 2030 as as as, as we expected you know so it's 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 a big deal yeah that's right yeah okay and when you're talking about about permitting are uh, you're, you're talking specifically about um these transmission lines that will get cleaner energy from point a to point b um yeah, there are a variety of aspects to permitting reform. There's the siting of new power plants or new wind and solar farms. There is the the building of new transmission lines. Uh, but there's like a variety of different aspects to get wrapped into the, these big permitting reform uh, proposals through Congress. I know permitting can be pretty Byzantine, and uh, you know you have that intersection of environmental law, land use law, and um, and nimbyism, not in my, my backyard, mm -hmm. individuals and not wanting things, even things that are that are potentially value added um, to be constructed near them. Um, I'm hoping in our, our next segment, we can talk a little bit more about that. Um, you know, how, wh what some of the strategies are to, that, that can actually be implemented to navigate and streamline uh, some of these permitting obstacles. Uh, Max Loves, I'm sitting in today for Matt Matter on a climate change with Matt Matter. Talking with Steve Balk and Dana Nugitelli from a Citizens Climate Lobby. We'll be back in a moment.
host, Max Loeb, sitting in for Matt Mattern on a climate change with Matt Mattern, talking with Steve Balk and Dana Nucitelli of a citizen's climate lobby. And we left off in the last seg- segment talking about some of the permitting obstacles that stand in the way of cleaner energy, types of sources of energy that would help us move away from energy sources that create emissions that contribute to climate change. Um, in terms of streamline, like what, like what, what are some of the strategies or how optimistic are you that, we'll, that some sort of, would it be legislation? What, what would it take to get us from this 10 year horizon of getting a transmission line built to connect a wind farm to an urban center to something more on the scale of like, what would even be desirable? What would be the target? Um, it would be like one year, 18 months. Uh, how do we get from point A to point B, both literally and conceptually? Yeah, I mean, the timeline is going to depend on the size and complexity of every each different project. But one example of a change we'd like to see is giving the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC, kind of more authority over interstate transmission lines, because right now FERC can sort of take over the permitting process for like a long interstate natural gas pipeline, but they can't do the same thing for an interstate electric transmission line, which means that if you're trying to build the transmission line, for example, if you're trying to transport wind electricity from Wyoming to California, you're going to have to transport that through a number of different states. And then you have to get permits from every individual state to before you can actually build that transmission line. Whereas if you had FERC in charge of that whole process, then potentially you just have to do one uh, application for a permit to FERC. And so that, you know, making that change would require uh, a chain, uh, basically uh, a law through Congress to give FERC that authority. Um, and there are some, a bunch of other different potential changes to make, like, for example, geothermal uh, exploration, because geothermal is a very clean potential energy source, but it has to go through an extensive permitting process that like oil exploration doesn't have to go through, for example. So if we could reduce the permitting needs for geothermal exploration, that can make geothermal uh, power plants come online potentially more quickly because you find more sites that they're potentially uh, cost effective to install. And so there's a whole bunch of these different changes that could be made uh, through a congressional permitting reform package. There's, there's a lot of eagerness on, on, on the part of Republicans to do permitting reform. This is something that they've wanted because basically what it means is simplifying or, or removing some of the regulatory process. And, and it's something right. that it's Republicans smaller have, government. It's, well, it's, exa- <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So where, exactly. Where, where where you have to reconcile the differences is, is to, yeah, we want to streamline the process, but at the same time, we don't want to do it in a way that ignores the concerns of communities that are that are might going to be that that might be affected by a particular project. So there has to be some give and take there, uh, you know, somehow to to kind of meet in the middle uh, be, be, between what uh, what Democrats might be concerned about and what Republicans would be concerned about. But I. We, we think it's possible. We, we think this is one of the areas where there actually is some uh, some opportunity for bipartisan cooperation to get something something very meaningful and, and important and necessary uh, done in, in this Congress. A lot of people have just sort of written off this Congress, you know, saying, oh, it's a divided Congress. The Republicans control the House. 
nothing's going to get done. No, there are there are some bipartisan things that uh, that can get done that that have to get done, and the the permitting reform uh, thing is is one of those. Yeah. So the challenge is in shortening and streamlining these environmental permit reviews that happen through laws like uh, NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act without you know constraining it too much that you're basically you know taking people out of the the participation process. We want to make sure everybody can still make their voice heard while still shortening the permitting review process. What um what involvement have you been getting from industry on this issue to, to the extent that um there is a lot of rhetoric, a lot of talk about the promise of, of a green economy, um, that you know, when you transition from one source to another, that is a that is an opportunity for investment, that is an opportunity for job creation. Um, have various participants or, or actors in on the industry side been helpful in, in pushing this initiative forward to, to help streamline permitting and, and help promote some of these uh, projects. Yeah. Dana, have, yeah. I mean, I think certainly, I mean, we're already seeing a whole bunch of different companies uh, bringing manufacturing of clean technology into the United States for, for battery plants and electric cars and things like that. Um, and certainly businesses want to see the permitting process happen faster, uh, businesses in that, that sector, because, you know, if, you know, the slower things happen, then the more projects get canceled. And then that's, you know, economic opportunity that gets lost. And so there's certainly a lot of uh, businesses and industries that are very eager to see uh, a successful clean energy permitting reform package get through Congress. What elements of the Inflation Reduction Act are, um, are potentially helpful in pushing forward this, um, some of these initiatives? Um, the Inflation Reduction Act very recently passed. Um, could you speak to some of the provisions that, that you're, you're excited about? Yes. I mean, in addition to those uh, tax credits for clean electricity that I mentioned, that those are uh, potentially going to just, you know, totally remake the U.S. economy and make it a much, much cleaner, greener economy with all these wind and solar farms that are potentially going to get built. Uh, there's also some great incentives for homeowners to electrify their homes and make their homes more energy efficient by getting things like uh, uh, heat pump water heaters and heat pump space heaters, replacing uh, fossil fuel furnaces. Uh, making their homes more efficient through weatherization, things like better insulation, sealing up cracks, better windows, um, you know, installing uh, solar panels potentially, and you know, electric charging stations, getting electric cars. Uh, these things are all incentivized through tax credits and rebates in the Inflation Reduction Act. So that's another one of our policy areas is uh, building electrification and efficiency. And we're really trying to educate homeowners into the opportunities and incentives provided by the Inflation Reduction Act for them to Basically, they basically have like an electric bank account to take money out of from the Inflation Reduction Act to make their homes more efficient and electrified. Yeah, I, you can get about 30% of the cost of a heat pump uh, you know, financed through the Inflation Reduction Act now. So that, that kind of brings the, uh, the the price down quite a bit. Uh, Dana, and, and I want I, I, perhaps you can talk a little bit about how you know, what'll happen if, if we actually, if we don't get these transmission lines built, there's perversely the chance that we could end up burning more coal than we currently burn. How, how, how is that? 
Yeah, that is, it's one complication of, because with the Inflation Reduction Act has all these incentives for homeowners to electrify and get electric cars and heat pumps and induction stoves and things like that, which creates more electricity demand. And so then if you have higher demand, but you're not quickly enough installing and connecting these solar panels and wind turbines to the electric grid, then that increased electricity demand has to be met by something and it gets met by more burning of fossil fuels of coal and natural gas. And so as a result, you end up burning more fossil fuels in 2030 and creating more air pollution than if we were able to, you know, do this clean energy permitting reform and get these uh, clean energy uh, wind farms and solar farms connected to the grid through these new transmission lines. So it's a really important thing, both for reducing our greenhouse gas emissions, but also reducing other air pollutants, especially in disadvantaged communities located near uh, coal power plants, for example, that are breathing all this air pollution and potentially breathe more of it if we're you know, burning more coal to meet this increased electricity demand. That would be an absolutely tragic irony. Yes. <laughs> Epic proportions. <laughs> Indeed. Um, the, the, the law uh, yeah. of unintended consequences never fails to circle around and if you'll excuse my, my language, bite us in the ass if we're not uh, oh. too careful. Um, well, it, to to that note, and um, what what are some of the and, and I guess you know we're kind of near the end of the segment, but I wanted to float the question of what some of the the um, on on the local level, what what are some of the typical issues of resistance we see to to building these lines? Uh, some of the issues that come up that that make this permitting process so dilated and and, and drawn out. Yeah, well, I mean, with transmission lines, the challenge is that they are very long, and so they go through a lot of different parcels of land. And so, you know, they might go through a particular, just an area that, you know, it's maybe it's got some trees or some species that people want to protect. So then you have to find a different route. Or maybe people just think it's ugly or, you know, they're not going to see the benefits themselves because it's taking electricity from one place away from them to another place away from them. And so why should I have this electric transmission line going through my property? I'm not getting anything from it. And so there's a lot of challenges there just because of the size and scope of these big, long electric transmission lines. Yeah, um, a a story is as old as time or a story at least as old as NEPA and CEQA. I, laws that I think have done tremendous benefit to the environment, but laws that have also given, again, the law of unintended consequences, uh, tremendously powerful tools to obstructionists. <laughs> uh, when we come back, I, I hope we could talk about uh, some of the uh, other initiatives that, that Citizens Climate Lobby is involved in. Um, so... Uh, with that, uh, I'm Max Slobes, sitting in for Matt Matter today on A Climate Change with Matt Matter. We'll be back in a moment with Steve Volk and Dana Nucitelli of Citizens Climate Lobby. Slows. I'm sitting in today for Matt Mattern on a climate change with Matt Mattern. We're speaking with Steve Wall and Dana Nucitelli of Citizens Climate Lobby. The Citizens Climate Lobby has um, been advocating for uh, carbon fees and dividends as uh, as one tactic, one strategy for incentivizing um, 
the reduction of, of carbon emissions that contribute to climate change. Um, I guess you could frame that as both a, a carrot and a stick. Um, what are some of the other initiatives that Citizens Climate Lobby has been, um, has been advocating recently? So when we uh, decided that we were going to expand the, uh, the, the policy portfolio of Citizens Climate Lobby, we, we looked at, okay, where can we, where do we have uh, an opportunity for bipartisan cooperation and, and where can we get kind of the biggest bang for our, our buck? And one of those is uh, with this area that we call healthy forests. And, and there's a number of things that we can, we can do on, on that front. And Dana, I'll, I'll let you kind of go into that a little bit about, you know, why, you know, forests are so important and, and, and how we can, you know, go ahead and tap into that, that resource as something that you know, reduces CO2 in the atmosphere. Yeah, I mean, in the United States, we're really lucky. We've got a whole lot of great forest land. About a third of the country is covered with forests. And the growth of those forests as you know, trees grow, they pull carbon out of the atmosphere and they sequester it in their, their woody biomass, their trunks and branches. And so the growth of trees in the United States uh, already pulls enough carbon out of the atmosphere to offset about 12% of our greenhouse gas emissions every year. Um, and so, you know, there's both large forests and then there's a lot of great benefits from urban forests, trees and cities, uh, which just the growth of trees and cities offsets something like the emissions of 10 million cars in the United States every year. And we could potentially roughly double that if we were to plant enough trees in, in the right places where they're suitable to grow. And then urban forests have all kinds of great uh, physical and mental health benefits for people. Like they've been shown to reduce stress and anxiety and depression and people who live near trees, they get out and they walk more. And so they're healthier, they're, they have uh, healthier body weights. Um, it's, it's, um, there was a great study out of Portland, actually the city of Portland has over the past 30 years engaged in this really big tree planting uh, project. And this new study that was just published found that for every 100 trees that was planted in a given Portland neighborhood, they avoided one premature death. And so you can imagine if you plant a whole lot of trees, you can avoid a lot of premature deaths because of people just living healthier lives, getting out and walking more, uh, reducing their stress, uh, it's associated with less cardiovascular disease when you live in a, in a neighborhood with more trees. Um, also, because we're getting worse extreme heat waves, the cooling effects from trees are really important because they provide shade and they also uh, have this process called evapotranspiration where they kind of release water into the atmosphere and that has a cooling effect. And so that's really important, especially in cities where we have a lot of, you know, concrete and asphalt that when you have a big heat wave, that concrete and asphalt kind of just radiates the heat and makes his cities particularly hot. And that can have deadly effects when we have uh, really extreme heat waves in cities. And so it's really important to have uh, as many trees as possible and green spaces in cities to offset these these worsening effects of extreme heat waves over time. They're, they're like nature's air conditioners. <laughs> they really are. Yeah, what what are what are like if you were to go into an urban area? Um, I know it's a bit vague, but um, I guess people in in cities can kind of just imagine for themselves what what that looks like for them. What, where are, are there sort of um, are there areas that lend themselves well to this reforestation of the urban landscape? Um, uh, I, I feel like there there are so many urban areas that are just completely paved over are, are you, do you are, are do some of these projects require like like 
jackhammering out concrete and asphalt or uh, do they involve planters being installed on top of paved areas like like on a, on a very like like literal level what do, what does urban reforestation look like uh, yeah, i see I mean, reforestation as if there were forests there before i don't know what does urban forestation look like yeah at, yeah. at one point, yeah, there were forests there before the cities were built. Yeah. Yeah. In a lot of cases, yeah. It's going to depend on the particular situation of a given area, um, a given city, and how much it's been paved. And But for example, you want to put as many trees near buildings as possible to provide shade for those buildings, because again, the buildings get very hot and you want to not require too much air conditioning when we get more and more of these extreme heat waves. And so, you know, if there's a lot of, if it's, you know, like a big building surrounded by asphalt, then you might want to jackhammer up some asphalt, for example, to plant some trees, or you might just want to find a nice open space that's not being used and, and plant a bunch of trees there and create a green space in or around a city. Um, there's a lot of different options. So it's just, yeah, it's going to vary depending on the specific local conditions. And, and we're, we're starting to get into this whole issue of, of what we call tree equity. And that is that if you live in a, in a wealthy neighborhood, the chances are that the tree cover in your neighborhood is going to be very lush, very, very robust. Temperatures are going to be cooler. You know, people in these area in these neighborhoods benefit from having more trees. Whereas when you get into poorer neighborhoods, you see less trees. And uh, if you want to see a really good uh, idea of what that disparity looks like, there's an organization called uh, American Forests, and they have a, they have a tool where I think it's their their tree equity uh, tool where you can go to a city and you can zoom in on a neighborhood and you can see a score a tree. Uh, cover score for that particular neighborhood. And if, if you're familiar with, you know, where the poor neighborhoods are and where the wealthy neighborhoods are, you know, you can see, oh yeah, there's, there's a definite disparity here and we need to do something about it. Yeah. I believe the website is treeequityscore.org and that their kind of overall statistic is that uh, the, the, the wealthiest neighborhoods in the United States have about 41% more tree cover than the poorest neighborhoods, and the whitest neighborhoods have about 33% more tree cover than the, the, the communities of color do. Those are pretty stunning numbers. And, and it also feels like something that that's very, do, like very, it seems like something that where, where change is very achievable. Um, I, I know it, there, there is a lag time for trees to grow, but um, I, I feel like uh, efforts to, if, if not create forestation, to, uh, um, to create more green space and more greenery in urban areas uh, can be achieved on a, on a fairly rapid time frame, um, relatively speaking. Yeah, um, that's the idea, it's, it's a pretty easy solution um, and it's got so many different benefits that, you know, the trees are going to pull climate out of the or pull carbon out of the atmosphere. They're going to provide cooling and and de-stressing services and improve people's mental and physical health and just uh, let people live longer, healthier, and happier lives. Yeah, it's a pretty big win-win when you think yeah. of the the not not just the climate impacts, but the the very human, emotional, and psychological impacts of mm-hmm. of greenery in urban areas. Um, I think. Uh, I, I want to end with uh, an, an, an easy question. So planting of trees, if you do that on, on a domestic level, um, you still have to confront, one, one must still confront the 
the reality that climate change is a, is a global issue. And um, I was wondering, how, how do some of your initiatives address the offshoring of, of, of emissions that contributes to climate change? Or specifically, you know, how, how, do, how do we confront the reality that um, there may be just a race to the bottom, continue activities that are undesirable from a climate change standpoint by moving them to jurisdictions, to other countries where there aren't these initiatives, there aren't these regulations, or there aren't these concerns? So there's a couple of good examples. There's a bill called the Forest Act that we were supporting in the last Congress uh, that basically uh, disincentivizes uh, businesses from importing products from countries from in areas that have been illegally deforested. And so that way we're not, for example, importing beef from uh, areas in Brazil that used to be Amazon rainforest and were deforested to create pasture land. Um, so that's a good way to disincentivize at least some deforestation. And then in terms of other industries, um, there's a you know, component of a carbon pricing mechanism. Is, it's called a carbon border adjustment mechanism, a CBAM, uh, which is basically where you put a price on the extra carbon content of materials coming across the border into our country. Uh, so that, for example, if you have steel coming from China, that's higher emissions, than higher carbon than steel in the United States, you make them pay the price for that extra carbon. So that creates the incentive for uh, these industries in other countries to reduce their carbon emissions as well, so that they're not paying this fee as they import their products across the U.S. Uh, border. And so that's another uh, type of policy that we're uh, supporting to try to address that issue. Yeah, Europe. Europe is already doing that now. They're they're set to implement this carbon border adjustment uh, for goods that are coming into their economies. Yeah, I would love to see that in the United States. I think because it's it's such a key piece of the equation, um, and and is is so reflective of the 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 fact that that environmental and climate phenomena just I don't really care about borders that we have drawn politically. <laughs> and, um, and we, we have to account for that. Um, the, the, the global and universal um, impact of, of these, these shifts in, in, in the climate and, and how, how we're going to address them. Um, as we wrap up, I just wanted to ask quickly uh, if, if somebody wanted to know more about um, past work that Citizens Climate Lobby has done, future initiatives that, that are on the, on the table, where can they go to, to learn more? You can go to our website, uh, citizensclimatelobby.org. Uh, uh, we have a blog and you can kind of search the blog for you know, different types of legislation like, like the Growing Climate Solutions Act that, that we were involved in kind of getting across the, uh, the finish line. But I, I, and if, if people really want to get a sense of reclaiming their democracy and making a difference, Come to Washington with us in June. Uh, we've got we've got a conference coming up, uh, and we train people how to lobby their members of Congress, and then they go to Capitol Hill and they actually do that. So yeah, that's that's a conference that's coming up, and you'll you'll find it on our website at uh, citizensclimatelobby.org. Fantastic, Steve, Dana, thank you so much for speaking with me today. I appreciate it so much. Uh, I'm Max Love, sitting in from that matter on a climate change with Matt Matter. Uh, until the next, be well.